I'm Christian Walmart, and welcome to Calling All Stations, the podcast that focuses on transport issues. And with me, as usual, is Mark Walker of Cogitamus. Hello, Christian. In today's episode, we are shortly going to be returning to the issue of young drivers in the UK and what can be done to make their use of the roads safer for themselves and everybody else. But first of all, we're going to examine the catastrophic accident on India's railways that took place just a few days ago, a subject with which you're very familiar, and I believe you've even travelled on the line where the accident happened. I did, indeed, uh, about uh, five, six years ago, um, and it goes through a kind of tribal part of uh, India, uh, pretty much pretty poor, pretty uh, uh, undeveloped, and where, in fact, a lot of the workers, and this was on the, on the train, were heading for uh, Chennai to the, to the south, that uh, used to be called Madras, uh, to get work for uh, the su- summer months. And uh, they were traveling uh, on the train, which is one of the reasons why uh, these services were so overcrowded. And I wrote a piece for the Sunday Times about uh, the accident, which is available on my website. And I made a rather important point, actually, because in the immediate aftermath of the accident, there was a lot of kind of almost kind of racist stuff about, oh, they were packed in like sardines, you know, the implication they were kind of sitting on the top of the train and, and, and that sort of thing, which there are lots of pictures of that in India, but it's by no means uh, the norm. You know, trains run in India like they run everywhere else and people are uh, safely inside the carriages and they're certainly not packed in like sardines on these regional uh, services which uh, are have very long uh, trains. They're, they're kind of twenty-four carriage long trains. Uh, most of the most of them are sleeper compartments. You know, with maybe 50, 60 people in each one. Uh, pretty much open plan. Very much like uh, uh, if people are familiar with films, some like it hot. Uh, famous Marilyn Monroe film that shows uh, a sleeper train. It's very much like that kind of open plan, kind of dorm type uh, sleeping accommodation. Um, And uh, I was trying to correct uh, two things, actually. First of all, that impression that, you know, the Indian railways are still stuck in kind of very primitive form of transport stuff, which is not the case. You know, it's a modern railway network where you buy your ticket via computer and, and so on. And uh, the other part of, of what I was trying to correct is that it has lots of accidents um, and that this is just, you know, one of a, a kind of regular series of accidents. And in fact, yes, there are still an occasional very serious accident, but it's nothing like in the last century when, you know, this sort of accident was quite commonplace. Um, and indeed, the rate of accidents uh, has reduced uh, by a tenth, um, to a tenth of what it was uh, at the end of the last century. I mean, that is a remarkable improvement in safety. And that that's a measure uh, that is taken as a serious incident, you know, that uh, are recorded 
um, and that has reduced uh, dramatically. So I, I, I just thought that there was a lot of correction to be done. And then, of course, I, you know, I've written a book called Railways and the Raj on the Indian Railways, and I sort of also wanted to correct the impression that often comes about, which is that you know we built the railway network uh, out of the kindness of our hearts for uh, the Indians and uh, you know they they were terribly grateful that colonialism was a terribly good idea. In fact, the truth is that we built the railways there uh, largely with uh, initially British money, but then uh, subsidized by Indian money, Indian taxpayers' money. And we bought it for, we built the railways for our own purposes, um, mainly to facilitate uh, exports and to also help imports into the kind of Indian heartland. Um, and it was only later that they, these early railway companies realized that there was a lot of profit to be made out of transporting large numbers of local people in pretty primitive third class uh, conditions. And uh, a lot of these companies then became highly profitable and they were still, these profits went to the city of London. So it, it was not kind of, you know, a great. Uh, colonial favour we did. It was, in fact, uh, uh, self-interest. I'm not saying that it wasn't of great benefit to the Indians. In fact, uh, you know, the rail network in India remains intensely used and, and greatly loved, actually. I mean, people are very proud of, their, of the rail network. And indeed, when Nehru take, took over after independence in 1948, uh, he actually uh, built up uh, the railways enormously, expanded uh, them, uh, invested in them, uh, took them over, um, uh, and right from the start, um, it was seen as a very important part of uh, growing the Indian economy. So there's a big story to tell there, and lots of interesting things. And of course, the accident itself, you know, was, the, 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 we don't, know what it was caused by, but it seems that a train was somehow dispatched into a sidetrack, uh, a sidings where uh, there was already uh, a freight train. And uh, why the signaling kind of worked in that way, we haven't yet found out, but it wasn't a signal passed at danger by a, a driver. It was certainly something to do with uh, the, the signaling. And indeed, um, it has slight resonance with the Clapham rail disaster, actually, Mark, because there was um, uh, there were three trains involved, which, which was the same in, in, in Clapham, um, and uh, it was uh, also something technically wrong with the signaling system, and that that was certainly the case with Clapham as well. So, um, you know, it, it had certainly resonances, and we need to, of course, find out exactly what the cause was. And I dare say that's the subject we'll be returning to in future podcasts as Absolutely. more information emerges. Loyal listeners will know that in episode 14 of Calling All Stations, we discussed the suggestions that had been in the media that the UK government was looking to restrict the activities and freedoms of young drivers, newly qualified young drivers, possibly limiting the number of uh, other passengers they might carry uh, in vehicles. 
um, uh, on safety grounds, on the basis that um, more accidents uh, tend to occur uh, around young drivers. As a result of that uh, discussion, we made contact with an organisation called the Under 17 Car Club, who exist uh, for the sole purpose, really, of improving the skills of young people, uh, even before they're allowed out on the roads as learners and as qualified drivers. And Christian, you've met and interviewed some of the people running the club. Uh, yes, I, I thought this was such an interesting idea, and I'd never heard about this, that uh, I decided to uh, interview uh, a couple of people, John Beckford and uh, Chris Singer, who are two trustees of uh, the Under-17 uh, Car Club, um, who uh, explained to me that uh, this has enormously positive results and they are greatly uh, reducing uh, the number of accidents which uh, the people who go through their courses have compared with the uh, young drivers in general. And so uh, they gave me uh, a, a really interesting account of uh, how they're working and something that they want to spread out more generally. Accident rates amongst uh, young teenage drivers are particularly high. And so I decided to go along to talk to two people involved in teaching under 17s to drive. Now that sound, might sound unusual, but uh, this apparently is a way of reducing the risk. So uh, I'm joined by Chris Singer and John Beckford, uh, trustees of the under 17 uh, car club. And perhaps we'll start off with John and tell me a bit about yourself and how you got involved in this uh, project. So um, getting involved in it was very simple. When my 13-year-old son wanted to uh, learn to drive, I took him along to the Under-17 Car Club, and that was uh, over well over 20 years ago. And um, like many parents, the club relies on, on people to run it, so we got involved in not just being in the club, but in running the club. And out right. of that emerged um, lots and lots of other activities. So um, uh, uh, yeah, the club started life as, as an opportunity for young people to learn to drive but it has become particularly over the last 10 years very very focused on addressing this this key problem that um, young people going on the road are at much greater risk than their than their um, older peers um, and um, we needed to do something about it so uh, uh, chris you're you're a, a police officer i understand with with involvement in, in this yeah, so I'm a, a former police officer. I did my full-time service and uh, the uh, when I was a, quite a senior officer up in the West Midlands, uh, I was made aware of the activities of the Under-17 Car Club and in particular the Pathfinder component of that and uh, went along uh, in uniform and within about 10 minutes of arriving at the venue where it was being staged, was being driven around very competently by a young 15 or 16-year-old driver um, and I just saw in action the delivery of steps that make an undoubted contribution to road safety. And I do think it's worthwhile just saying at this point that, you know, we frequently will talk about road traffic accidents. They're not accidents. An accident is something that's unforeseen and unavoidable. What happens on our roads is foreseen and avoidable. 
uh, it's very, very rare that something happens on a road that can't be mitigated against. And what we do within the car club, and particularly Pathfinder and the other activities of the car club, our, our sister organisation, is work to avoid the avoidable. So working with those young drivers, we work with them to make sure that those things which we can foresee, young drivers who will get behind a wheel, inexperienced, uh, and take risks, we work against that to provide them with the skills that will equip them for a lifetime of safer driving. So what 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 is the what is the cause of uh, this high rate? Is it just uh, inexperience? Is it uh, young, largely men, kind of uh, getting hold of uh, a, a big vehicle and uh, driving too fast? So what what why is there such a high rate? Um, so that's an interesting question, Christian, and one that's, that's, that's been bothering us for a long time. Um, fundamentally, we teach young people uh, not enough of the right things. Um, we teach them in an urban environment at very low speeds and um, and dealing with, with, with the world of, of, of right angles. When they get to the age of 17 and the first freedom they get is a driving license, they have a propensity to go and drive too fast and uh, drive too carelessly because they don't understand what is going on. So if we go back to the sort of the origins of the question that we that we we came to you with is the notion of graduated driving license is necessary um, it, because it's pointed to a fundamental problem with the current system of training and testing that we apply to young people. So, so we're we're trying to address a problem that um, the stable first-time pass rate of around 50% for, for young, young people taking a driving test suggests that the process itself is stable. So what we are teaching people is wrong because the consequences of what, of what they're being taught is this A, 50% failure rate, a B, a 20% or thereabouts collision rate in their first 12 months on the road. Those have Sorry, been stable. Say that again, really. There's a there's there's that high a risk of a collision in their first year of driving. Yes, it's one in four and a half, according to DFT statistics. Gosh. Um, and it, that's a reportable collision. So that's damage to people or property. So it's right. not a minor curb strike. It's actually somebody's thumped a wall or they've thumped another car or they've, or they've thumped a person. And that's happening because what we're teaching them to do, typically through a, a conventional uh ADI process is essentially to pass a driving test. We are right. not teaching them, in essence, to drive. We're doing it in, in constrained environments. And we understand all the reasons why this is the case. But what it ends up with is a need for somebody to say, um, there is a better way of doing this. By teaching different things, we can reflect that, they, that what we've got is a failure of process, not candidate at the moment. It is not the candidates that are failing. It's the process that is failing the candidates. What are you doing to break that model? Then? So what we do is we we take young people with a parent, and this is this is this is key. So our young people come along with a parent or other a suitable adult, and they work with that parent and uh, and in their own car to work through a very very highly structured process where, frankly, the technical content is the same as the DVSA process. It's the same knobs, levers, steering wheels, buttons that they have to learn to use. Right. But most young people master that in a very short period of time. What we then work on with them and their progress through the club and through Pathfinder relies on their behavior and attitude to driving. And we encourage safety, safe, positive, safety, positive 
thinking. We promote risk-aware thinking so that we're developing thinking thoughtful drivers rather than simply mechanical drivers. And we do that by making them aware of the risks. So that what are the causes of the, the fatal five? Um, what are the consequences of that? Not Sorry, just the fatal, the fatal five. What's fatal that? five. Chris, you'll have to list these. They are speed, <laughs> they are drugs, they are drink, they're it's yeah, it's speed, impairment, um, and uh I forgot the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's essentially essentially sort of lack of concentration, lack of skill, and and, and we we don't teach um through the DVSA process, we're teaching in largely urban environments, and that's you know, a function of where people live. When you put a young person then out into a rural environment, they're traveling more quickly. The dynamics of the vehicle change quite dramatically as they get up to, to higher speeds. And again, as they increase the loading in the car, so a small car with four people in it handles very differently to a small car with one person in it. And they do not understand the limits of the dynamics of the vehicle. So yeah, the, the classic crash is you know, midnight to 2 a.m. on a Saturday. It's wet. It's a country road with an overloaded small car. And it's crashed in the first instance because the young person was driving too fast. There's no sort of arguing with that. But they're driving too fast for the conditions and the vehicle. And they don't have a skill set that enables them to recognize what's going wrong and correct it. So they're braking hard to slow for a, for a bend. They lose traction on the road, and rather than lifting their foot off and trying to steer and drive around the bend, they push harder on the brake pedal, which is a, exacerbates the problem rather than solves it. And that's because they haven't been taught anything else. They haven't okay, so 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 you'll call the under seventeen. So you start with with people who are under seventeen. So so obviously the obvious question is where where do you do this because you can't do it legal on the road. But what and and what are you doing exactly? So we, yeah, uh, so in terms of the two organisations that we have, the car club starts with 11-year-olds. So, yeah, wow. we have 11-year-olds driving. Um, the Pathfinder is normally sort of the rising 17s, those who are heading towards their driving test. We use a variety of locations, uh, some MOD land um, and other sort of circuits and such like. Uh, clearly, as you say, they have to be private so that they are not roads, so they are absolutely private, secure, gated venues. Uh, not accessible by the public at all um, and we as John has said we take them through a graduated approach at the mechanical skills yeah day one sort of day one plus two and then we start getting them to drive ahead and we use with our constant reference point is the uh, is the manual that's called roadcraft which is the emergency services manual of driving skills which talks about all the time working to a system to control your driving on the road, information, position, speed, gear, and acceleration in that order. Um, and you know, what we see is sort of day one, day two, the young drivers are very much driving around what's going on in their car. They're concentrating on changing gear, they're concentrating on all those sort of things. We teach them over the five days then to start driving ahead. What's happening ahead of your vehicle, way ahead of your vehicle? Respond to that. Think about where the safest place for your car to be on the road is. Think about the speed you need to be at. What gear do you need to be in so you can hold that speed and then accelerate clear of the hazard? So it's a really realistic program. and We do emulate realistic road conditions with them so that they can see what it's like when they get out on the road. Um, and, and, and the evidence that we collect is testament to the fact that 
as John has said, you know, one in 4.5 young drivers will have a collision in their first 12 months of driving. We dramatically reduce that incident, uh, those incidents. Have you, have you got figures on that? Yep. Yeah. Back over to John because he'll quote them exactly. It's, it's one in 19 across all of our surveys. Wow. So, so it's, it's a dramatic, it's a dramatic effect. We survey um, the young people from the car club and from Pathfinder, and we've done it now consistently for very nearly twenty years with students going back as late as the as, as the mid nineteen nineties. And although the numbers are small, the because we can only survey the people that we that we that we've worked with, um, they are consistent. Um, so that w- what we're doing is, is is demonstrating that it can be different um, and that by changing the way we think about the process of driving, the process of learning about driving, the skills that are required to be safe and then engaging. And, and it is really important is you know, we engage young people and their parents and both Chris and I have, have taken our young people through this process. So, what sort of numbers are we, are we talking about? You, 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 are you a, a national organisation, or are you only local at the moment, or, or what? what we're, sort we're, of... we're a tiny organisation. We're a small, entirely voluntary-run charity. Um, I say small. There are about um, seventy volunteers on the Pathfinder side, and a hundred and something on the Car Club side. So, there's a not that small. Um, nobody takes a penny out of it. And everything is funded either by parental subscriptions for Car Club um, or with support from police and crime commissioners in a few parts of the country. Um, so we operate, the, the Pathfinder operates in, in Yorkshire, across Staffordshire and the West Mercia area and, and down into Gloucestershire and, and Wiltshire. Uh, but we accept candidates from anywhere in the country. And where um, um, we exclude nobody, and this is important on financial grounds. So one of the one of the one of the criti- criticisms is, you know, be your old posh white middle class parents. It's, of course, it's good for you. Um, so we make sure that we reach out and, and accommodate students who financially can't afford it, who might otherwise be excluded on educational grounds or whatever, um, or, or even health grounds. And we never turn somebody away. So, who so the, the pathfinder is for over seventeen who who are. The car club is for under 17s, is that right? Yeah, the rising rising pathfinder is typically 15 to 17-year-old. So it's just in that last year before they go on the road where we get the opportunity to give them the privilege of driving, and it is a privilege, excuse me, and, um, and accompany that by, because we believe we understand something about education, and, and we've, we've, we've both been involved heavily in, in, in management education, management writing, by changing the information that's available to the young people, by helping them to understand what is going on around them, by helping them, and this is better the parental involvement, by trusting them to behave in the right way and showing them what that looks and feels like, they engage with the learning and they go away um, not just better and safer young drivers, but actually better and safer young people. Okay, so so if this is such a good scheme, which it sounds like, presuming you are trying to get this as part of the official process, is that something that, that you envisage? Or uh, will it just remain always a, a kind of a, a, a charitable uh, add-on, as it were? I mean, you know, there's no doubt that the sort of the practical difficulties of making it a mandatory requirement for all drivers would be uh, would be significant. Um, so I think, you know, the availability uh, is key. And we certainly have expanded the places in which we operate. Yorkshire came online uh, about three or four years ago. 
um, and uh, we're constantly looking at how and where we can expand and in dialogue with police and crime commissioners and others in other parts of the country. So we are keen to increase the offer because we know it works. And I think, you know, I think the important thing as well here is this, this isn't a, this is something that works with the young drivers. I'm not going to knock the importance of regulation. And clearly from the, from my background, you know, enforcement is, is clearly a component in regulating what goes on on our roads, but that's not the sole answer. And what we're concentrating on here is the educational aspect. And as John has said, bringing in those life skills, you know, driving is there's more uh, there's more involved in driving than simply the mechanical control of a vehicle. It involves all of the constituent elements of the person's you know approach to their driving. Are they steady measured and, and giving consideration to what's going on around them? All of those are things that you know, education will foster. You can't regulate somebody to start thinking about where is the safest place for my car to be on the road. You can't regulate somebody to start thinking about uh, what their attitude is towards their driving. You know, we say, you see the, the billboards that say, don't drive when you're tired and all of those sort of things. Well, you can't actually, you know, sure, you can punish people if they drive on their tired and they have a collision. Um, but that's not the same. So what we're doing is something fundamentally different. We're changing attitudes. We're enforcing. We're we're bringing about. Sorry, we're educating attitudes in relation to driving, and that's where we're working with the young drivers, uh, not seeking to impose something upon them. You know, I think the whole aspect around graduated driving license is that. It, it is an admission. Sorry, could you explain graduated driving license? Yeah, so I mean, graduated driving license is simply uh, a, a, an approach that somebody earns their driving license through a test, but post that process is then entered into a process that uh, graduates how they can then earn their right, if you like, to drive freely on the road at, at their own direction. So, for instance, some of the component parts of them may be curfews. Some of the component parts of graduated driving license, which may restrict the number of people you can take in a car. You know, other countries and some, some of the states in America have uh, systems in place where new young drivers are not allowed to drive after a certain period in the evening. Is, not, is this something you're advocating? No, absolutely. No. Because oh. it, I mean, for a start, there are unintended consequences. If you restrict the number of people who can be carried in a vehicle, then all you're actually doing is, is magnifying the number of vehicles that are going to be on the road. Right. So one car carrying five people, you can have five carries, cars carrying five people. It, it magnifies that there's, there's a potential there, particularly in terms of uh, young females, uh, for uh, them to be actually at greater risk. Um, because they can't be given a lift by their mates. Yeah. Exactly. So there's all sorts of potential unintended consequences of it. And it doesn't actually solve the problem. The, because... All you're doing is is restricting and and creating a set of restrictions that don't improve driving in their own right at all. And I think it's really interesting. Just the other week, a, a, a local associate of mine, a friend of mine, who uh, has a daughter who's just who's 17 now, um, who'd gone through a, a whole load of, of driving lessons and had taken her driving test twice and not passed it, 
um, unfortunately not been able to attend Pathfinder despite wanting to, but uh, it was elsewhere in the country. So I took her out for two or three uh, sessions on the road and I was just observing the things that she hadn't learnt during the course of her driving lessons and preparation for the driving test that I knew would help keep her safer on the road. Like, For instance, a really simple one, on a main road, driving along, vehicle waiting at a junction to the near side, and I said to her, can you see the driver's eyes? Are they looking at you? And she looked and she said, oh yes, I can see her. I said, right, now what does that tell you? And she said, well, she's seen me. Yeah, great. Now she had never ever been told that. Oh, so right. she'd never been told that. As a lifelong psychic who's managed to stay alive till uh, uh, my 70s, uh, that is the number one thing I do. That if I'm cycling along and there's somebody on the side and I don't know, uh, I don't, I can't see their eyes, I slow down. I, I absolutely, I, I only go forward if I see their eyes. Absolutely. That's, and I think that's a really, I mean, it's a really simple thing, but it's a really yeah. good indicator of where we're not preparing people for the road. And I'm not knocking ADIs. They have a really tough job to do. I absolutely get that. But the point I'm making there is that having then learned that, she was then applying it, which meant her driving was changing as a result of it because as we were approaching junctions she's making the conscious effort to check that the vehicle's seen her and she's adjusting the position of the vehicle accordingly and we use a simple mnemonic in both the car club and pathfinder concentrate observe anticipate because that gives you space and time to react coast concentrate anticipate gives you space and time and when I went through that with her and just talked through that, she said, oh, that makes such a difference. And it did make a difference to her driving because right. she's starting to think and she's then thinking, well, oh, maybe I'll go a little bit slower because I can't see the driver's eyes or whatever else it might be. Position off to the offside a little bit. So I give myself space, all of those things. So I think it's a really good illustration of where the skills that we introduce are above the level that necessarily is expected to be seen within the driving test, but makes a significant contribution to keeping young drivers safer. Are you mainly doing boys? No. I, I, no I, it's, it's, it's almost exactly 50-50. Oh, really? That's days. interesting. Um, and that's, and that's all young men kind of eager to, to get, get um, home. No, it's, it's really interesting. It's... it's, it's yeah, the the attitudes are very different between between the the, the young people, the, the young boys and the young girls, but the the the, the girls are coming out increasingly and increasingly. I'm pleased to say that our, um, particularly our marshals, but also increasing numbers of um, women getting involved in the instruction process. So we're not just shifting the balance. That you know, when I first got involved twenty years ago, it was predominantly young men. Um, now we have more women instructors, more women marshals. Um, women chief instructors on some of our courses and that again helps to, to to shift the dynamic i think one of the important things that, that comes out of this is is that yes we're small christian um, and we are trying to get bigger and it's very difficult to grow a voluntary organization as, as, as i'm sure you you know but the the cost of each uh, road traffic collision with an injury is about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds to the public purse so it is reported by by dft 
participation in Pathfinder or Car Club costs a few hundred pounds. There's a real strong value for money equation here, which is that um, the work that we are doing is bringing down the cost of the public purse. So there's a financial case for this, as well as the emotional case of, of all the accidents that don't happen, all the young okay. people don't get injured as okay. a result of being on the programme. I mean, we've sort of addressed this already. You say we've got to talk to the police commissioners and police forces and various government agencies. But how how do you see that this has been rolled out much more widely? Because clearly, uh, governments don't always think about this uh, uh, saving money in the long term. They just think about saving money in the short term, and this this will obviously have a cost. So how how are you going to get it rolled out more more nationally? Which is presumably you, your your reason for talking on this podcast. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, for a start, you know, it just in, some, in simple financial terms, we know because we've got the data that we can save money. It's as simple as that. Um, so, uh, you know, we would say to anyone who is actively involved in, in dealing with the consequences of road traffic collisions that um, we can save money. So we can save the public purse money. So whether that be health, police, fire, whatever else it might be, um, we would welcome the conversations. Um, naturally, the support that we've got from the police and crime commissioners, um, in, in addition to financial, provides us with uh, physical resource as well. So we have police officers coming along to help instruct, which I think is absolutely superb. Um, and we would welcome discussion with police and crime commissioners on that. Uh, recently, our latest set of statistics was published on the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners website. Um, so they should have all have had access to be able to see it. Uh, and that's the hard evidence that shows what we do works. Um, so we would welcome that. Um, and then also schools, colleges, further education institutions, um, we would, uh, and indeed, uh, you know, employers um, who, who have a responsibility in terms of the safety of their workforce, who may be engaging with uh, apprentices uh, and such like, we would welcome discussions there because we, the model we have is portable, providing we can find a suitably sized venue, we can put the, 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 uh, the programme together really easily. We've got the volunteers um, and we're, we're very keen, in fact, to train further volunteers so that we can just expand the offer. So, you know, really, we, we do welcome discussion. And the other, the final point I'll make is this, that we, we have given evidence now to the Transport Select Committee, uh, Young Drivers uh, Evidence Gathering Process. Um, you know, and that's something that I think is really significant because whilst we may be a relatively small uh, organisation, and incidentally, we do provide Pathfinder for over 300 young people on an annual basis. So actually, that's not all that small. It's not insignificant, yeah. Um, uh, but but for us to then have been accepted uh, in front of uh, the uh, the select committee, I think is really deeply significant because it shows that we're an organisation that has gravitas and has significance. Um, so uh, you know, we welcome we approach us, come speak okay. to us. Well, that's a very good point to end on. Uh, uh, John and Chris, uh, thank you so much. I, I, I wish you luck in your endeavours and I hope that uh, uh, the podcast will help spread the message. So I'm going to stop recording and thank you very much. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, Departure Lounge indeed for Boris Johnson.
And why am I mentioning him in connection with a, a transport podcast? Well, reading the uh, biography uh, on uh, Johnson in number 10 by uh, Anthony Seldon and his colleague, uh, it's very clear that the only reason that we are continuing with building HS2 is because of Boris Johnson. This was his baby. And he resisted enormous efforts uh, by uh, Dominic Cummings, amongst others, senior Tory ministers, even some civil servants, to scrap HS2 when he became uh, prime minister. And he had real showdowns uh, with these people to, to push the programme ahead. And uh, the contracts uh, then on was sufficiently set in stone by uh, this decision to ensure that we will get uh, a chunk of HS2 built. We've discussed before about uh, exactly how much. But so uh, with the departure of uh, Boris Johnson, it's certainly the departure of uh, the main protagonist for HS2. And when it is completed, you know, it uh, there might be a temptation to call it the Boris Johnson line. I suspect that that won't happen, but uh, you know, it really was down to him that uh, HS2 is happening. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.